In one week in April 1970, 17,000 mothers and their newborn babies were asked to take part in a survey to find out more about the first week of life. This became known as the 1970 British Cohort Study, BCS 70. The study followed these babies as they grew and continues to do so today. This year the study turns 50 and so welcome to 50 Years of Life in Britain, a podcast celebrating half a century of the 1970 British Cohort Study. I'm Lee Elliott-Major, Professor of Social Mobility at the University of Exeter, and I'll be your host over the next six episodes as we trace the story of BCS 70 across five decades and consider the future of this amazing study. We started with the 1970s, and in the last episode, Professor Jean Golding told us about the challenges of working on a birth cohort study before computers. All the information of the birth surveys were on punch cards, 17,000 cards. The team involved would be doing the sort of things that we would do in terms of creating tables. And Professor Leon Feinstein explained how his BCS 70 research helped to improve preschool education for future generations. When you look at how the graph was used often, it was to emphasise the importance of the early years. And so, on to the 1980s. Brits might reminisce about the era of curly perms, big shoulder pads, J.R. Ewing and synth pop, but the British cohort studies found it tough going during this decade. The 1980s in Britain was a turbulent time to be growing up. Britain had been at war with Argentina. Unemployment was rising. There were race riots on the streets of major cities and the miners' strike devastated communities across large parts of the UK. Taking the charts on a Sunday night, we spend our ballet and madness and so on, all those kind of era songs. I remember very clearly when Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Relax, reached number one, but was banned by the BBC. Prince Charles and Lady Diana getting married. I was waiting for her to rock up in her big dress. I think I watched that part where she stepped out in that endless train and then I just got bored and went out on my skateboard. We're still in Thatcher's Britain. Employment was a challenge at that time that things perhaps looked pretty bleak. E.T., still one of my favourite films. I remember crying for about an hour afterwards. Band-Aid and Live-Aid. I remember watching Live Aid with all my friends from school and it was such an exciting moment. Grange Hill and Hammer House of Horror. Then there was a a documentary called Threads about uh, nuclear war which had a a great effect on me. It was uh, incredibly depressing and one of the ever-present things to be worried about at that time was the Russians were going to bomb us and we could all die from fallout any, any minute. The media furore about who shot J.R. Ewing. I think I might even have had a T-shirt that said, Who shot J.R.? I was living in Liverpool and one of my most vivid memories were the Toxteth riots. That was a a very profound event that had quite a big impact. Knowing that these riots were taking place, you know, a few miles from where I lived, Also, later on that decade, the fall of the Berlin War. I remember watching that on the television news at university and 
one of the students jumped up and said, oh, I, had to, I have to go there. So he started planning straight away and we heard from him then three days later and he was out there in Berlin taking part. We'll find out how study director Neville Butler managed to pull together enough funds to meet with the study's participants on two occasions in the 1980s. We'll also learn more about the special birthday party he threw for 4,000 study participants. In this episode, I'll be talking to current director of BCS 70, Professor Alice Sullivan, about her research looking at the benefits of reading for pleasure for children's progress in English and maths. We'll hear the memories of study participants, of taking part during their teenage years, and we'll find out more about that 19th birthday party. We'll also chat to Professor Scott Montgomery about those early years when the study was still based in Bristol. But first, I'm going to talk to John Bunner, who shares some memories of Neville Butler, the mercurial founder both of the 1970 and 1958 birth cohort studies. John is a former director of BCS 70, so I began by asking him how he became involved in the study. Well, I was working at the Open University at the time, and I was asked to find out why it was that people weren't using the, the 58 cohort. Government had got pretty fed up with it and decided that they wanted to move the thing over to the Economic and Social Research Council, or it became a research resource for people rather than something that was of direct government interest. So anyway, I, I did this study and came up with the fact that people couldn't use the study because it was simply too complicated. And it had been designed and used always in the past by the people who actually had created it. And they hadn't seen the need for documentation and all these things which become crucial for users. And that's what I came up with, a sort of program that would enable much better interest and use to be generated about the study and also improve the documentation. How important was this for enabling the BCS 70 cohort to also be accessible for, for researchers? Well, it was very important because it laid the, it laid the ground really for a, a whole sort of ESRC interest which didn't really exist in these studies at all. And once once the whole thing started working for the 58 cohort, then it was much easier when we took over the 70 cohort to actually do a similar job on that because that hadn't been properly documented or any, no thought had been given to making it available to users or even depositing it in the data archive. So all these things had to be done in the early years and, and convincing ESRC, of course, that it was a worthwhile project for them to take up. They hadn't really got the idea of research resources of this kind then. And so we were able to make the case, demonstrate the importance of the 70 cohort. And I was very keen to bring it in alongside the 58 because it hugely strengthened both of them, I felt. And that's why I managed to pull it off. And in those days, was this very much, uh, you know, was, was the whole social science community behind this? Or was it just a few of you who were sort of championing the, the, this survey? Most people who tried to use these surveys hadn't got anywhere. I met people who had them on available, you know, for years and, and they couldn't do it. They didn't know how to 
deal with this data. The use of data on this scale was very, very rare at that time. The whole world was entirely different. Nobody had laptops or desktops or anything of this sort. Everything was done by large mainframe computers. So getting all this sort of thing done was part of a whole movement, technological change, a transformation, the digital society. It all worked in with that, as well as actually making the case for using these studies. And increasingly, interest grew in them, because once people realized you could use them, you have them on your desktop, and you could then start raising questions. And initially, economists got very interested in them for the first time, and that was one of the liftoffs, and there were many others of that kind. Can you give us a sense of what then it was like to analyse data for research in the 1980s and early 90s compared to what it's like now? Managing and, and trying to digest this data, analyse it, it, it was very different, I assume, in the 1980s as compared to now, where you literally just, well, it's not trivial, but you you know literally can do it on your laptop. They were just... BBC computers, you know, mm. things that just couldn't do anything. And there was a one giant sort of one gigabyte holding platform and which all research had to be done. There was absolutely utter dependence on other, other machinery. And of course, when the um, 58 cohort was originally located in the National Bureau of Child Studies, it um, used to take its data to London University to actually get the analysis done. So you'd have to wait 24 hours or something, you know, before you got any results. And if you made mistakes in, in, in entering the data, then you would get nowhere, you know. So the whole thing was infuriating. And, but people struggled on with it because they recognised the value of the data. I mean, when the early days, when I was talking to Neville Butler about this kind of work, he didn't believe you could do anything like linking data or, you know, even joining up these birth cohort studies. You analyse them entirely separately. You know, analysis at that time was done with things like cards and whatnot. It wasn't even computerized. You know, people struggled with, with, with doing all this, doing a lot of it by hand, but they couldn't really access things by computers and they couldn't deal with large-scale data. This is the other transformation, the, the, you know, the data revolution, really, in terms of what's available to researchers, but almost anybody who now wants to get hold of data, and obviously government and every element of society is, takes all this for granted. But none of this really got off the ground much before the end of the 80s. I want you to talk a little bit about how you became then director of, the, well, I think it's both the 58 and 70 cohort studies and, and also you know, how you worked with Neville Butler. That's become an almost iconic name now. Well, Neville asked me to join his um, committee or board of directors of his company it was that he'd set up to run this project. And um, he, he got very bogged down in the work involved in the um, H16 study. That was the whole problem. So increasingly, I moved from being a director. And um, anyway, the long and short of it was I finally, it finally moved to a situation, but only in, in really the last year before moving to City, when it was agreed that I would become the director of it and he would retire and funding had completely run out and all the rest of it. But he had some, he had a few 
two or three grants that were passed to me as part of that the job of actually taking over the project and then we moved it to city university they're amazing studies i think most people would would say that now and but you'd think that the government would support it and it'd all be quite strategic but actually what you realize it's all down to a few individuals who doggedly sort of champion these studies you know is that is that true for you and, and and never was it like that yes it was i mean very much so there was i mean it's hard to believe that esrc had no interest in these projects whatsoever i mean they didn't see any need to fund them support them until they were actually being asked or pretty well forced to by government who said you've got to take over these projects but but neville i mean the thing about neville was an interesting character he was an absolute charmer as you know but also in many respects i think one of the most attractive things about neville was he had a real vision about this kind of work but he absolutely believed that ultimately they would realize their their value and then people would benefit hugely and you know understanding the problems that beset children or whatever would be solved through these both cohort studies and that's where his importance i think is is underlooked in the sense that he he kept on plugging away at this but didn't have the resources personal resources or monetary financial to actually deal with it it had to move into a national direction. John Bunner with a real insight into how he helped make the study data more accessible for the research community. The name Neville Butler keeps coming up, but who was he? Professor Butler was the founder of both the 1958 and the 1970 birth cohort studies. He's been described as possessing infectious enthusiasm for the cohorts. And as a paediatrician, he cared deeply about children's welfare. He was an irresistible charmer and worked tirelessly to network with important politicians and celebrities in order to keep the study funded. Professor Scott Montgomery, a clinical epidemiologist at Orebro University, Sweden, recalls his experiences working with Neville Butler after he moved the 1970 study from the University of Bristol and set up his own charity to run the Age 16 survey. So there I was in Bristol at the, begin- at the end of the 1980s when I joined the International Centre for Child Studies at ICCS. Uh, and most of the people actually who were working on the study were physically based there. Of course, there was a small number of external collaborators, but all of us really were the small team based in Ashley Down House in Cotton Park. Uh, which sounds rather grand. It was a large family house with a big garden, in fact. Uh, But, you know, really quite a large house because it housed all of us. And it was a rather a pleasant working environment, although perhaps you might describe it as as shabby chic, might be the way to, to describe how it was furnished. The thing about Ashley Down House was it wasn't only the International Centre for Child Studies, and home to youth scan, it was Neville's home. That's where he lived, so he would be there. And it felt like a home in that sense. So he was always there, of course, sometimes with guests. And, you know, working with him, you know, like anyone, it's some people, you know, there are ups and downs in any working relationship, but working with him, it was, you know, one remembered that he was one of the pioneers of longitudinal research, you know, starting with his interest in early life because he was a paediatrician. But then thinking about what happens later, 
even across generations. You know, I remember him telling him about one of his early members, uh, memories of childhood. So he, he comes from a, a medical family. And his grand, I think it was his grandfather, he was describing, you know, how he did his rounds with a top hat and drove, you know, a, a horse and trap to make his house calls. And so Neville has that incredibly long view, had that long view from, you know, over the whole 20th century, seeing how things have changed, going from, you know, the, the GP behind his horse in a top hat to what was relatively modern then and embracing the computer technology that we had to. Um, so on the ground floor, there were people concerned with raising funds. There was somebody who was actually a dedicated research grant writer, whatever the subject. And then there were people who would raise funds charitably there as well. The next floor, the first floor, was where I was, and that housed the epidemiologists, the people who worked with the data as well. And then upstairs, again, you had a mixture of people ranging from psychologists, sociologists and others. It was a family house, as I said, a large one, but still we knew each other very well. Uh, we saw all of each other every day. And the house was conveniently placed for the cotton porter stores, a rather attractive little pub at the end of the street. And so at the end of the week, we'd often go there and enjoy some rough cider because we're in Bristol after all. Back in the 1980s, what else did the study tell us about the cohort at age 10? At age 10, one in three study participants went to the library often. Two in five said they were good at maths. Half had caught the measles. One in seven had said they'd tried a cigarette. One in ten lived in lone parent families. Two in five ate chocolate every single day. Four in ten helped their parents with the washing up. Each episode we hear from BCS70 members sharing their memories of participating in the study. Here they reflect on what it was like taking part during the 1980s. I remember the age 10 survey. It was quite it was quite a big deal really for me. I was the only one at my school. It was quite a small primary school and I was the only one who um, who was taking part. And there was quite a lot, lot of interest. Everyone, all my friends were asking me what it was about and all that sort of thing. And I remember having to go into the head teacher's office to do a whole load of tests and things, spelling tests. I remember her reading out a whole load of spellings and things like that. And I had a morning off school as well, I think, when my mum took me to a health centre where they weighed me and measured me and I had to walk along a, a line painted on the floor in a straight line and things like that. And um, I remember having to throw a ball in the air and see how many times I could clap before catching it. And, uh, yeah, I remember my mum was uh, quite amazed at how, how many times I could clap before catching the ball because I was renowned for being a bit rubbish all that kind of thing. So, uh, so that was quite good. I think I was 16, was it 86, that test? Um, it would have been around O-level time. And um, I just remember another small room and um, just these questionnaires um, that asked quite pertinent questions, I remember when I was 16. Kind of questions that adults generally didn't ask teenagers. <clears throat> and they they're quite refreshing to answer because you always felt like, oh, OK, so my opinion matters 
and someone's sort of listening to how I feel about things. They asked us about smoking, sex, uh, drinking, all sorts of things that you just wouldn't dream of talking about probably to anybody over the age of 16. Um, so yeah, they were, they were always quite stimulating to, to take part in and they made you think about yourself. Professor Alice Sullivan has been director of the 1970 study since 2010. Alice was behind the surprising research findings that revealed how reading for pleasure during childhood helps children's progress not only in English, but also in maths. I started by asking her about the 50th anniversary of the BCS70 study. I'd really like to wish the cohort members a very happy 50th birthday year. We're so sorry that we can't go out to see you all and interview you this year. And also we're really sorry that all the events that we were planning for your birthdays have had to be postponed. Um, we're so grateful for everything that you've done since you were born um, for science and to shape our understanding of the society that we live in. So I hope that you'll continue to be part of the study for many, many more happy years to come. The COVID-19 situation has obviously affected everything that we do. Um, we were hoping to go to the cohort members' homes and do face-to-face -face interviews this year. But obviously we can't do that, so we're piloting doing interviews over video conferencing, which will be really interesting, and obviously if that does work, it could be quite useful for the future. And then also, of course, with the cohort members being 50 this year, we were planning lots of celebrations and events, which obviously cannot go ahead now. So we've had to postpone all of that till next year. Let's get back to one of your areas of expertise reading for pleasure what did you actually find i'm from an education background i'm interested in education and learning and so that's that's certainly influenced um some of the priorities that i've had as a pi so for example the fact that um at age 42 we repeated a vocabulary test that the cohort members had done previously at age 16 was something that I put in because I was interested to see whether they'd been learning and developing their vocabularies in adult life, which then in turn was what led on to the reading for pleasure work, looking at the age six, because I thought, well, we're going to use these vocabulary scores again, better do some work on them in the 1986 data where they were first included. And so that was kind of quite serendipitous that out of that we found the enormous impact that reading for pleasure had on learning um, in childhood. And then we were able to develop it and find that reading continued to have an impact on developing people's vocabularies into midlife. We found that kids who read for pleasure when they were age 10, so in 1980, of course, they scored better in, cogn in cognitive tests at that age, but they also improved more. So we, of course, we have very rich information on cognition um, in the 1970 cohort. So lots of tests at age 5, at age 10, at age 16. And we were able to show that even compared with kids who had similar cognitive scores at age 10, the ones that read for pleasure made um, more progress. They, they scored more highly in vocabulary at age 16, but they also scored more highly in mathematics as well. So um, 
which seems to suggest that um, the fact that they're reading and they're improving their vocabularies is also having knock-ons for other subjects. Can you just define what you mean then by reading for pleasure as different from, I don't know, having to read a textbook for uh, school? So reading for pleasure really just means reading that no one is forcing you to do that you're you're doing for your own sake. So it's not homework and it's not work. It's just it's a leisure activity. Liz, one of the study members, spent a lot of her early years in the library close to her home. So the library was hugely influential in my life. So we had a park at the top of the road and we had a library at the bottom of the road. And those two things uh, really were my, my salvation, particularly the library at the bottom of the road. So not having a car, um, not having a lot of money, the library was my freedom and I could spend as much time as I wanted in that library. So my Saturdays I would spend huge parts of the day in the library. You were allowed to get two books out and that was that was fantastic. And I always imagined that one day I would become a librarian and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a librarian because I thought it must be the most fantastic job in the world to be allowed to spend the whole day in the library and get paid for it. And I imagine that the librarians were, could read every book that came in and that they were able to select the books that they read. So it was a, the library was a massive part of my life. And is there any evidence on whether it's the quality, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, of, of the actual books that are being read? Does that seem to have any impact or do we not have the details on that? So that's a, that's a really interesting question. And what we found was actually it matters quite a lot what genre you're reading. And reading more demanding fiction is the thing that really um, is associated with the biggest vocabulary gains. As I got a little bit older and I got more interested in biology, I would take myself off to the library and they used to subscribe to New Scientist magazine. And I would spend my time reading New Scientist magazine, not really understanding most of what was contained within it, but just thinking, wow, this is exciting. This is really something that, you know, people are researching and there's scientists out there and they're reading all of, you know, learning all of these things. So the, the library was, it was a huge part of my life. They're happy places for me. They're, they're, um, you know, they, the, the information on the shelves and the pleasure that the books can bring, it's just so wonderful. And I think the sort of love of learning came from, you know, a combination of factors and the opportunities that I was given. So I had, you know, great encouragement from my parents. I had great encouragement from teachers. And also I had the resources at my fingertips as well. So, um, so the opportunity to access um, the books. And I think, I think that combination of factors sort of led me to continue in education. Uh, how much of this is causal, do you think? 
you can never really prove it beyond reasonable doubt. And reading for pleasure, of course, is something that you can't force people to do. So even if you could, in theory, do an experiment and allocate randomly to a reading for pleasure group and not, you could never do that because you, you can't force someone to do something for pleasure. It would be a different thing if they were doing it because they've been told to do it. So in some sense, that makes the, the kind of causal element to it even more difficult, um, even in theory. If we take reading for pleasure, for example, obviously um, bright kids are more likely to read for pleasure. So they're more likely to read for pleasure because they're bright. So, so then how can you argue that the, the reading for pleasure has actually made them brighter? Well, that's where the change in over time comes. So you can compare people who had very similar cognitive scores at age 10, um, but one of them reads for pleasure and the other doesn't, and see how much more learning there is than between the ages of 10 and 16. It doesn't prove causality, but combining that with controlling for um, some of the other things that might be linked both to reading for pleasure and to the outcome of learning, such as the obvious things like parents' education and social class and so on, once you have enough of those kinds of things in the model, you feel a bit more confident that at least your causal interpretation is you know, a plausible interpretation and you've ruled out some of the other plausible interpretations that are non-causal. But I think what happens when you read is that you are exposed to so many more words than you would be um, just through conversation. And so people have done studies where they look at the number of different words, even in children's books, compared to an adult conversation. And there's far more diversity of language in a storybook, even, even a kid's book. So the causal story is simply that, you know, you're exposing yourself to a lot more words and as such, you, you learn those words. What we were able to do that previous studies hadn't done, because there were lots of cross-sectional studies saying, look, bright kids read more, so probably reading's really good. And it's, it's just a bit unconvincing because, of course, we all know that. We all know that bright kids read more. Um, so it's being able to show that they actually pull away from their peers who were equally bright at age 10 um, by the time they're 16. So how did your research impact on policy or practice? So the findings have been taken up by every major literacy organisation and they've been taken up by politicians across the political spectrum. So they've been cited by David Blunkett in a Labour policy review. They've been cited by Nick Gibb for the Conservatives as school minister. So I think that's one of the nice things about these findings. They're not um, kind of controversial or party political in a way. Um, they seem to appeal to everybody from parents to teachers to librarians to policymakers. Um, because I think people people do understand that learning is more than just being sort of crammed for a test. The power of reading is a deeper kind of learning. And I think that being able to show that based on a really solid scientific base as well with a very large nationally representative longitudinal data set, um, I think has given a lot of confidence for people like literacy organisations who want to make that argument anyway, to be on very solid ground and saying, you know what, reading is very important. Back in the 1980s, here's what the BCS70 study can tell us about life at that time. At age 16, two thirds of study participants drank alcohol the week before their interview. 
They received an average £4 pocket money a week. One in five bleached their hair. Two in five had a job during term time. One in five listened to heavy rock music. 20% had takeaways twice a week or more. Three in five had friends around every week. But what about that famous 19th birthday surprise? Emma and Sam reflect on the amazing invitation they received to go to Alton Towers and have the theme park all to themselves, only with 4,000 other members of the cohort. just gone to university and um, and I met one of my neighbours, one of the other students who lived on the same corridor as me. I discovered that his birthday was in the same week as me and we discovered that we were both in this study together and then we both got the invitation to come to Alton Towers. So we decided to go together and uh, it was really good fun. We had a great day. Um, yeah, it was really, it was really good. And to see all these other young people there, all the same age as us, that was really, really good fun. I went. I was there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I took my best friend, went on the corkscrew, and I remember having the park to ourselves. That celebration was the hottest ticket in town. Um, and obviously it was exclusive as well. So you, that was really special. One of my lasting memories of my late teens. And also being an 18-year-old girl, and going there with my best friend, we were obviously like, oh, I wonder if there's any hot boys, <laughs> you know, as you do. It was just a really fun day out. And then Neville Butler made his great entrance. There was a sort of parade and um, he was standing in this sort of... Um, I don't know, it's a bit like a Pope-mobile, you know, sort of thing. He was standing in that and it was uh, it was going, going past and he was waving at everyone and it looked a bit... He had kind of... I don't know if this is a real memory or if I've just made this up, but in my memory, he had kind of bushy white hair, a bit like Einstein, <laughs> and he was just waving at everyone and everyone was waving and cheering at him. In the next episode, we'll move into the 1990s to find out how the study and its staff survived the lean years, the 1980s and the 1990s, and managed to get back into contact with study participants after a 10-year gap. We'll learn how the study's findings on adult literacy and numeracy help people across Britain face their learning gremlins. Mum, how do you spell choir? Mm. That's a tough one, isn't it? Um, you don't know, do you? Um, Mummy can't spell. Oh, this is so embarrassing. We'll also ask study participants what it was like to join the study again as adults and find out how they were getting on in the big wide world after the boom and bust years. See you next week. 50 Years of Life in Britain, powered by UCL Minds. I hope you subscribe to join the celebration. Mm -hmm.